Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Rick Martinez in for Don Curtis on this edition, speaking with uh, Mitch Kokai, who's senior political analyst of the uh, John Locke Foundation. Just talked about the fact that we do not have a budget, uh, but a bunch of uh, mini uh, budgets. Does anybody win politically uh, if uh, we don't have uh, a state budget? And because I believe it was uh, Senate President Phil Berger said uh, that he wants everybody out of town by October 31st. And if um, is that going to provide any incentive for people to sign a budget? You know, I, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out politically. I, I don't know that there's going to be a huge winner from the Republicans' perspective. They don't have to have as much new spending as would have been spelled out in that new budget, which could be a good or a bad thing, although they have approved the money for the pay raises. But they also don't get the tax cuts. There were tax cuts built into that budget, once again knocking down— That's a good point. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, once again knocking down the, the a, a couple of the major rates— and that's not something that is going to survive a Governor Cooper veto. So that wouldn't move forward. I think it's going to be, to some extent, a wash because so many people haven't even been paying attention to the budget debate. Who will get blamed? The, the, the one area that I think could be ripe for some, some political debate here is teacher pay raises. I mean, teachers have been very quiet so far. about. Exa- this. Yeah. I mean, they were obviously very vocal – they have been for the past couple of years holding these big marches about their priorities. And the General Assembly approved another substantial pay raise. Governor Cooper wants an even larger pay raise. Right now, they haven't had any pay raise. And since this impasse started between the governor and uh, the General Assembly, we've heard nary a peep from the NCAE the North Carolina Association of Educators. They've said not much of anything, nor have rank-and-file teachers, and they're not getting any pay raises. Uh, I suspect that part of that is because, uh, at least from the NCAE, they have aligned themselves with the governor. So uh, to, to, um, to come out and say something at this point basically uh, would be poking the General Assembly, which has an incentive at this point not to do anything, and just to go home and not give them any raise. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think they want to stir them up even more than they than they already have by aligning themselves with Governor Cooper. But if this impasse goes on, if, in fact, Phil Berger, as you alluded to, says we're going home October 31st and we're done for the year and teachers don't get any pay raise, at some point they're going to come out and say, wait a minute. <laughs> they're either going to say, General Assembly, you guys are a bunch of jerks, which – the general assembly say will say back to them you've been saying that as, uh, about you've been saying that about us for years so <laughs> what's different or they'll go to governor cooper and say look we know what you wanted and we know that we supported you on medicaid expansion but can you relent a little bit so we can get a pay raise mm-hmm, yeah uh, something's going to happen there but otherwise you know the the only people who are griping or who or who could be griping because there's no budget are the people who will get some goodies from the government. So uh, people who are expecting to get some sort of state grant mm-hmm. who don't get it because there's no budget, they might complain. But I think most folks will say, well, that's okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take on the uh, b- the big issue of Medicaid expansion. Yeah. Um, 
Good idea or bad idea for North Carolina? Oh, bad idea for North Carolina for a number <clears throat> of reasons. Uh, the Medicaid program has long been uh, a, a real cost driver in North Carolina. It's only been in recent years that the General Assembly and the department has really kind of took off under uh, your former boss, Pat McCrory. Mm-hmm. Uh, they finally got some cost controls in the Medicaid program, so there's some predictability. People with short memories are not going to remember that four or five years ago, well, maybe even longer ago than that, six or seven years ago, uh, it was hard to predict how much money you would have for education, for prison, oh, that's right. for everything else, mm-hmm. because Medicaid was not only costing more and more each year, it was unpredictable how right. much more it was going to cost. Mm-hmm. And so it, it took away from th- from money that could be spent on other priorities. And really, it's only been since the Republicans took control of the General Assembly, and it took them a few years. It wasn't like day one. It took them a few years to finally get a handle on Medicaid spending. Adding half a million more new people, or, or more than that, new people to the roles of Medicaid could be another big cost driver. And, of course, the supporters of Medicaid expansion have said, wait a minute, almost all of that money is being paid by the federal government. Only about 10% of it is a North Carolina match, and we're going to match it not from the regular taxpayer but from new fees charged to the hospitals. And the hospitals will go along with it because they're going to get some of that Medicaid money, and it should be a net gain for them. That's that's their argument that, hey, it's not really costing taxpayers – uh, but I think the, the leaders of the General Assembly are saying, yeah, but I don't think that's a deal that's going to last for a long time because the Medicaid program as it exists without expansion is basically in the neighborhood of a two-to-one match. The federal government picks up about two out of every three dollars, mm-hmm. and that's for vulnerable populations. That's for the disabled, uh, kids, the elderly, the people with disabilities – uh, the people that mm-hmm. Medicaid was really designed for, whereas the expansion population is primarily, not entirely, but primarily childless, able-bodied, working-age adults. And so at some point, someone who's in charge of Medicaid is going to say, do we really want to have a 90% match for the people who are probably most likely to be able to get insurance on their own, whereas we have only a 67% match or two to one ratio for the really vulnerable populations. That's that's not a situation that's going to have a long term viability. And so at some point, North Carolina, if it did expand, would be on the hook for much more money. Plus, Medicaid itself has other problems like the fact that a lot of doctors don't want to take Medicaid because the reimbursement rate so low. So finding a way to help the people who fall into a coverage gap that's an important goal. Doing it through Medicaid expansion, not probably the best way to do it. The um, Republicans in the General Assembly have come up with a plan. The alternative is called Carolina Cares. I'm trying to remember whether or not it has a work requirement. But, you know, what does the John Locke Foundation think about the, that alternative? And and then uh, more specifically, uh, what does the John Locke Foundation uh, think about the work requirements for people who get um, some sort of public assistance on their health insurance? Yeah, work requirement would be a good thing. We have not been in favor of what was Carolina Cares, and it's changed its name again. I mm-hmm. believe it's North Carolina North Carolina Healthcare for Working Families or something like that. But yeah. but it is the Carolina Cares idea, and you're right. 
that uh, that had two things that differentiated the Republican version of Medicaid expansion from the one that Governor Cooper and legislative Democrats want. One is the work requirement. The other is a premium. And both of those are included in, uh, in the Republican version, which has some support, at least within the state house, might be able to get through the state house. State Senate leaders have said they're not interested in it at all. Um, Phil Berger in his most recent pronouncement about this has said, well, you know, we'll, if this can get through the House, and that's a big if, but if it gets through the House, we'll, we'll look at it. But he has not signaled any interest and has not said that his Senate Republican caucus has any interest in dealing with that proposal. But in terms of that bill, uh, we've not at the Locke Foundation have not been on board with it because to us it's basically – the, all the bad points about Medicaid expansion are still there. Mm-hmm. Having a work requirement and having a premium would make something bad a little less bad, but it still is not something that we'd be on board supporting. Well, I know that um, the John Locke Foundation has a, a gentleman whose uh, primary job is to take a look at health care. Um, and it seems to me that Medicaid expansion, whether you're for or against it, Carolina Cares, whether you're for or against it, basically deals with insurance. It doesn't necessarily deal with health care costs and so forth and prescription drugs. And, you know, you see uh, President Trump and Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, we're going to go after those big, bad uh, drug prices and all that sort of stuff. Um, Are these approaches uh, actually uh, effective? I'm not sure that they're going to be effective at addressing the the real major problem, and that Mm -hmm. is access to health care. I mean, insurance... That was one of the interesting things about the Affordable Care Act is that its emphasis was almost entirely on insurance. Mm, And the idea was if you get more people insurance, then you're going to solve the problem. Well, no, not really. I mean, it's – I think everyone who who has a serious notion about addressing the issue says – we don't want people to be in a situation where they're going to have a major health emergency and it's going to wipe them out. So the insurance yeah. piece yeah. is important, but you don't have to address the insurance piece by just saying, okay, let's put everyone on Medicaid or even the, the proposal now, the Medicare for all, which uh, Bernie Sanders and others have, mm-hmm. have come up aboard with that. I mean, the, the real issue is access to care. And a lot of that is supply. I mean, we need more people providing services and more people providing the the types of medication that that folks need. I mean, it, the cost you're not going to address the cost unless you address increasing supply too, and also recognizing that the more people who have access to the insurance, the more they're going to want the services. I mean, one of the things that stops people from going to the doctor now if they don't have insurance is how am I going to pay for it? And that's a bad situation to be in. But if you do give them the ability to pay for it, then they're going to want more services. There's just a, as night follows day, if people have more access to an ability to pay for the services, they're going to want more services. Not everyone's going to you know, run to the doctor every day, but some people are going to run to the doctor for things that they let go now. And if you don't increase the supply of healthcare, then what you're going to end up with is what we've seen in some other areas that have more universal health insurance, and that is rationing. Because if you have 
a lot more people clamoring for the same amount of services. Yeah. That means mm-hmm. you have to find a way to mm-hmm. ration who's actually going to get it. And shocker, it's probably going to end up with a situation that the people who are able to pay more are going to be able to get something that everyone else will not. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard that's happened in other sectors. <laughs> Our, uh, our guest is uh, Mitch Kokai. He's senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. And uh, we'll return uh, from our final se- uh, for our final segment after these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95... I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. In the news, a small boy was rescued from abuse today by a magic trick. Witnesses say a bully had the boy pinned down. Scott was hitting Jimmy pretty hard, and I said somebody should do something. Moments later, a street magician arrived on the scene. Police reports state he covered the bully with his coat. What happened next is still under investigation. The bully turned into a bunch of kittens. The victim left the scene unharmed. Boy, you never see that happen. That's because it doesn't. If you see abuse or neglect, learn what you can do from American Humane at BeHumane.org. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Rick Martinez and for Don Curtis on uh, this edition, speaking with uh, Mitch Kokai, Senior Political Analyst for the John Locke Foundation. Now, I know that you are probably one of the few non-judicial people, or I'm sorry, yeah, non-judicial people, that follows our courts uh, rather uh, closely. And uh, first of all, why should anyone pay attention to the courts? And uh, number two we have had a significant uh, political change on the courts. Uh, address those two issues. At first, I thought you were going to say, why should anyone pay attention to what you have to say about the courts? Which is a good question, because I'm not you a lawyer. You know, lo- that's a good point. Let's move on, <laughs> Mitch. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a lawyer and uh, I have not ever worked in the judiciary and basically only f- fell into this uh, in some respects, because back when we first started having the political change that you alluded to, I was interested in seeing how that would affect what the Supreme Court has had to, to say about particular cases. And so it turned out that I ended up being about the only person yeah. for a while who was paying attention to how the Supreme Court was ruling and how it broke down politically. Um, and so back to your initial questions, it is important to know what the courts are doing because they have a major say on what the other branches of government are up to. Going back to the days when Pat McCrory was the governor, the Supreme Court had a major uh, ruling in a case called McCrory v. Berger when they ruled in favor of the governor and against the General Assembly in terms of what the governor was able to do in his job Mm -hmm. versus how much the General Assembly could dictate what the governor could do. That had various spillover effects because once Roy Cooper, 
took over as the governor. He relied on the precedent of McCrory v. Berger to help him in his fights with the General Assembly. And, and he's, he's had a few. And, and he's had many, and he's been largely successful in mm-hmm. the courts at using the precedent of McCrory v. Berger to help him win in his battles with the General Assembly. So the the, the Supreme Court and the, the courts in general in North Carolina have a great amount of say over what the other two branches are able to do and how much they're able to interfere with each other. And the second part of your question was the major change in the courts, and we really have seen that. Um, To give you the short version, several years ago, Republicans had a majority on the state Supreme Court. And in the 2016 election cycle, when there was one Republican Supreme Court justice up for re-election, the Republicans in the General Assembly tried to change the process so there would be a retention election. They lost in court on that. Then, instead of restoring the party labels to the election, they left them off. And on the ballot, the Democrat appeared where the Republicans appeared on every other spot on the ballot. And so the Democrat won that race, knocking the one Republican off. The last election cycle, we had one Republican up for re-election, and because of some other uh, failings of the, the General Assembly to get their ducks in a row, we ended up with an election in which there were two Republicans, one of whom was not really a Republican, yeah. a Republican in name only, and a Democrat on the ballot. The Democrat wound up winning that race with less than 50% of the vote. And so now, and then shortly after that, Uh, Chief Justice Mark Martin, who was one of the only remaining Republicans, decided to get out of Dodge and become the dean of a law school in Virginia. (laughs) Governor Cooper replaced him with another Democrat. So right now we have six Bypassing a a senior Republican (laughs) on the the, court. The only Republican left on the court. So now we have six Democrats, one Republican left on our Supreme Court. And after the 2020 election, because that one Republican is going to be running against the chief justice, I mean, it's entirely possible the way that, uh, depending on the way the elections swing, you could end up with seven Democrats on the Supreme Court. And those Democrats, at least some of them, are not uh, not necessarily philosophically aligned with supporting some of the things our Republican General Assembly has done. So the courts could play a major, they have been playing and could continue to play a major role in determining what types of public policies can move forward in North Carolina. Yeah, and um, as a little bit of background, uh, Governor McCrory's beef for the General Assembly was that they would set up these uh, commissions and uh, task it up to the executive branch. And and then to fill them with a bunch of General Assembly guys. And, right. and Governor McCrory was saying, well, you've given me the responsibility to clean up, uh, you know, a particular problem, but yet you've tied my hands by putting all of your people on there instead of my people. And, you know, and, and in that suit, he also got uh, support from uh, previous governors, Purdue, Easley and uh, Hunt and uh, Governor Martin as, as well to, in that suit. Um now, there has certainly been a lot of political actions on the judiciary with regard to everything that you just said, which has to do with a lot of ballot access and all that sort of stuff. Uh, again, you actually read the opinions of the court and and, uh, and the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals. Have you seen a political bent on any of their decisions? Every once in a while. Uh, you know, until this year, it's been hard except for in the case of Cooper v. Berger, which Mm -hmm. was 
the, the main case pitting the governor against the General Assembly. Other than that one, which came down along party lines, most other cases, there were interesting coalitions, and they weren't always partisan. This year, with one Republican, Paul Newby, he has been more likely to be the one dissenter in 6-1 cases. But there have been also a lot of cases in which Democrat Anita Earls has been the only dissenter. So it's not always partisan. Mm. And there's shifting coalitions that have to do with the particular judicial issues. But uh, it is going to be interesting to see what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Well, what's interesting about that is that uh, that kind of happens on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court oh, as yeah. well. Well, we've been uh, speaking with Mitch Kokai. Mitch, thanks so much for coming in and uh, sharing your expertise with our listeners. We appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Always happy to do it. And uh, be here next week when uh, Don Curtis will show up for work for change and uh, host uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Have a good week, everyone. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.